0: but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true in Acts chapter 1. In verse number 1, it says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Welcome to part two of our series, Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Christ. In this sermon, we will look at the foundational aspects of our series, which is this the promise of the Holy Spirit as it is outlined here in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Now, in the coming weeks, we'll also be dealing with this uh, transitional period uh, between the time in which they were given this command and that they were to do certain things until the Holy Spirit uh, fell upon them. And then we'll be considering that time period in Acts chapter 2 and the fulfillment of the promise. But as believers, we recognize the crucial role of the Holy Spirit, or at least we should, and if we are not, we should rediscover the crucial role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the church. The Holy Spirit is not merely some abstract concept or distant force, rather He is a personal and active presence who empowers us to live out our faith and boldly proclaim Jesus as Lord and Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, we find the disciples gathered with Jesus just before his ascension into heaven. They were eagerly anticipating the fulfillment of a promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in his wisdom and love, instructed them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the gift of the Father that the Father had promised, because it was necessary for the church, both for its members and for its mission. And that still holds true today. It's a, the Holy Spirit is essential. And this promise was not some afterthought. It was not some random occurrence. It was part of God's divine plan from the beginning to equip his people with power and guidance of the Holy Spirit. The disciples, filled with anticipation, remained obedient to Jesus' command, and they devoted themselves to prayer, seeking the fullness of this promise. As we go through this series, we will explore the significance of this promise for our lives today as well. And we will look into the scriptures, examining the transformative impact of the Holy Spirit's presence in the early church and its relevance for us today in this present age. If if we would return to this... It would dissipate all of our doubts and fears, for it is the very reason why we are full of doubt and fear because we don't we are not the full we're not experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So as we go through this series, we're going to explore the significance of it in our lives today, because the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Wasn't just for the apostolic age. The Holy Spirit has always been at work throughout all ages. And therefore, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is also for the ongoing work of the church until the consummation. Through a deeper understanding of this promise of the Holy Spirit, we will uncover the purpose and power of the Holy Spirit in empowering us to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Christ. That is the ultimate purpose. We will discover how the Holy Spirit empowers us to live out our faith with boldness, to bear witness to the truth, and to impact our world for the glory of God. So as we embark upon this consideration of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit, I hope that our hearts will be open to receive fresh insights, our spirits will be renewed with divine power, and our lives will be transformed as we grasp the magnitude of this promise and the significance for us as followers of Jesus Christ. So first of all, let's notice the promise of the Holy Spirit, which is in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. In Acts 1, we are privileged to witness a remarkable moment when Jesus, before ascending into heaven, imparts a promise to his disciples. Or at least we can say he he reminds them and reemphasizes this promise that has been given to them. And It is essential for us to grasp the significance of this promise, both biblically and definitively, as it reveals the surety and fullness of God's promises. First, let us explore the biblical concept of a promise. In the Bible, a promise is a declaration made by God himself, binding himself to fulfill what he has spoken. God's promises, therefore, are not arbitrary or conditional upon human merit. They are expressions of his unwavering faithfulness and goodness. They serve as firm assurances that God will act according to His Word and accomplish what He has stated. That's where our faith comes in, because then the question is do you believe that? Do you believe? Do you believe the promises that God has given? Do we believe them? Do we believe what is stated in His Word? From a definitive perspective, we understand that a promise is a commitment or assurance given by one party to another. So in this case, Jesus, the Son of God, stands as the one making the promise to the disciples. His words carry divine authority and carry the weight of absolute certainty. Therefore, when Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples we can be assured of its truth and dependability, which is why they remained exactly where Jesus told them to remain. Because they were waiting. He, they were waiting for the fulfillment of his promise. So the surety of God's promises stem from his character. The scriptures affirm that God cannot lie in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. And his faithfulness endures throughout all generations, Psalm 100, verse 5. You see, our God is a covenant-keeping God who fulfills his promises without fail. There are countless of examples throughout Scripture bearing witness to the fulfillment of God's promises, and they're actually showcasing, as we might say today, right? Showcasing his unwavering trust of worthiness. Consider the promise that God made to Abraham that through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 13. Now this promise was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who came as the Savior of the world, the whole world. The birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ stands as a tangible evidence of God's faithfulness to his promises. Through Jesus, all who believe receive the gift of salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, just as promised. Consider the promise that God made to Abraham concerning the land. God promised Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 8. And I absolutely believe without any doubt that that is and shall be fulfilled. It is being fulfilled And it shall be fulfilled. The land promise given to Abraham in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment, though, in Jesus Christ. In a spiritual and eschatological sense. In the Old Testament, God promised Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 8. Now, this promise has both immediate and long-term implications for the nation of Israel. Historically, the Israelites did enter the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua and possessed it for a time. However, their possession of the land was not perpetual based upon merit or essence, but based upon God's faithfulness to the covenant, both positively and negatively. As a result of their disobedience and unfaithfulness, they face judgment and exile. But God is faithful, and what does he do? He brings restoration. But this promise continues on, and God's faithfulness continues on. Because the promise remains perpetual, expansive, and sure. Based upon the fulfilled obedience and power of Jesus Christ. So in the New Testament, with the coming of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's promises take on a broader and spiritual dimension. Jesus himself is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and his descendants. And through faith in Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles are incorporated into the spiritual Israel, becoming heirs of the promises. The Apostle Paul in his letters helps us understand this fulfillment. He teaches us that those who belong to Christ are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise that he gave to Abraham. That specific promise. All those who are in Christ are heirs of that same promise. And that's according to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29. In Christ, therefore, the land promise expands beyond the physical boundaries of Canaan, for God so loved the world, to encompass the whole world. The inheritance that God promised to Abraham and his descendants now extends to all believers in Jesus, irrespective of their ethnic or national backgrounds. Furthermore, the New Testament speaks of a future fulfillment of the land promise in the coming kingdom of God. In Revelation, the vision of the new Jerusalem symbolizes the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises where God's people will dwell with him forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And this signifies the complete restoration and consummation of God's promises for his creation, including the inheritance of the land promised to Abraham. Therefore, through Jesus Christ, the land promised to Abraham finds its fulfillment uh, fulfillment both in a spiritual sense, where believers of all nations become heirs of the promise, and in an eschatological sense where the ultimate physical realization awaits in the perfected kingdom of God. But the focus shifts from a specific geographical location just as jesus told his disciples that you shall be witnesses unto me in jerusalem and then he starts expanding it right judea and samaria and into the othermost parts of the earth well the same way with the promise with abraham began in a specific place in a specific location but it is to encompass the whole world And these promises to Abraham were reaffirmed to Isaac and to Jacob. We could also consider the promises of deliverance and the presence of God to Moses and how that that was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. We could consider the promise of an eternal kingdom to David and how this was also fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And when it comes to the promises made by Jesus himself, we should find immense assurance. We should be confident in the promises of the one in whom we say that we have faith in, that we have faith that he has been granted all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus's promises are valid and trustworthy as he is the son of God and the embodiment of truth. But the thing we notice about the promises of God, such as his promise to never destroy the world again, by a flood to Noah, is that they are closely connected to covenant. As a matter of fact, right off, you might have trouble distinguishing between the two. Because they are so closely connected. However, promises are not covenants, and covenants are not promises. They are not identical even though they are closely related and they go together. A promise is a declaration or assurance given by one party to another committing to a certain action or outcome. It establishes an expectation that the person making the promise will fulfill what they have pledged. And, you know, (laughs) we even... uh, we're always looking for some covenantal assurances even in our promises, right? Because we'll make a promise, remember when you were a kid, and then you had to say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Right? They needed some assurance. They wanted you to covenant. But... Promises can be made in various contexts and relationships, whether between individuals or between God and his people. On the other hand, a covenant is a formal and a legal binding agreement between two parties, often accompanied by specific terms, conditions, and obligations. It goes beyond a mere promise and involves a deeper level of commitment, establishing a legal or spiritual framework for the relationship between the parties thereof. In the biblical context, covenants were significant and solemn agreements made by God with his people. They outlined the terms of the relationship between God and his chosen ones, including the responsibilities and the blessings that accompanied the covenant. Covenants contained promises from God, which further emphasized his faithfulness and his commitment to his people. While covenants generally encompass a broader scope and entail more uh, comprehensive commitments, uh, promises can be individual elements within those covenants. The connection between promise and covenant lies in the fact that promises are often serve as key components or assurances within the framework of a covenant, reinforcing the covenantal relationship and the trustworthiness of God in these cases. Turning back to Acts 1, we encounter God's pro- or Jesus' promise. This is a promise that is being made in the context of his covenant. The new covenant, as we refer to it as, or we could refer to it as the renewed covenant, but the new covenant in Jesus Christ. We encounter Jesus' promise to his disciples regarding the Holy Spirit. This promise is indeed true and valid, for it is a promise within the new or renewed covenant. The book of Acts testifies to its fulfillment. As we witness the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. Now the empowerment and anointing of the Holy Spirit enabled the disciples to carry out their mission. Which may I suggest that was the purpose Okay, so the empowering and the anointing of the Holy Spirit enabled the disciples to carry out their mission, which resulted in the rapid growth and expansion of the early church. Now, the continuing chapters of Acts demonstrate the, you know, what we could say the tangible manifestation of the promised power as the disciples boldly proclaimed the gospel, performed miracles, and established communities of believers. As recipients of God's promises, we must hold on to them by faith. That's the example we see. And the book, or the, chap, the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, is to reinforce this idea that God's promises, that he reveals to man, we must hold on to them in faith. First of all, recognizing that they will be fulfilled in God's timetable. But faith demands seeking God diligently, enduring in times of trial and testing, and obeying his commands. By placing our trust in the promises of God, including the promise of the Holy Spirit, we then open ourselves to experience the transformative and empowering work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the life of the church. The promise of the Holy Spirit given by Jesus to his disciples stands as a testament to the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God's promises. Just as God fulfilled his promise of the Holy Spirit in the early church, he continues to fulfill His promises today. We must hold on to this promise in faith. As a matter of fact, we can examine our lives and our actions and understand whether we are holding on to this or not. The reason why the church is no longer a praying church is because we do not believe. We're skeptics. Were deconstructed. But we have to hold on to the promise in faith, knowing that the Holy Spirit empowers us for the work of proclaiming the gospel and establishing the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit equips us with spiritual gifts. It convicts hearts. It guides us into truth. It produces fruit in our lives and unifies the body of Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, we have the power and authority to be witnesses, and may I say, powerful witnesses, both locally and globally. As we reflect on the fulfilled promises found in Scripture, we can find encouragement, and I hope that we do, and assurance that the promises of God are sure. Which calls us to the question, what are we waiting for? From the promise of salvation in Christ to the promise of eternal life and the promise of his abiding presence, God's faithfulness is unshakable. Therefore, let us approach the promises of God with unwavering faith to seek him, enduring through trials and obediently following his commands. And as we do so, experience the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and witness the fulfillment of God's promises in and through us as we consider the promises of the Holy Spirit. First of all, let's notice the promise of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. This promise of the Holy Spirit is specific. And the first thing that we are going to consider is in this promise of the Holy Spirit, is that he indwells believers. He indwells his church. One of the most remarkable assurances given by Jesus is the promise of the Holy Spirit's dwelling in believers. In John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17, Jesus spoke these profound words to his disciples. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. These words carry immense significance and provide a deep sense of comfort and encouragement to believers throughout all generations. Jesus assures his followers that the Holy Spirit whom he refers to as the helper or the comforter will come and take up permanent residence with him. As a matter of fact, this is the message that is proclaimed by Peter as he is proclaiming the sinfulness of the Jews and they respond, what shall we do? He says, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the promise. It is not a temporary presence or a fleeting encounter, but it is an abiding connection between the believer and God. In these verses, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his impending departure from the world. And he assures them that although he will physically leave them, he will not leave them as orphans or without support. No, Jesus promises to ask the Father, who is God, to send another helper, to send an advocate to be with them forever. And that helper is none other than the Holy Spirit. First, Jesus assures his disciples that the Holy Spirit is given by the Father. It is through the authority and divine plan of God that the Holy Spirit will come to dwell within believers. The sending of the Holy Spirit is not a random occurrence, but a deliberate act of God's grace and provision for his people. Second, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. And this title emphasizes the essential role of the Holy Spirit in revealing and guiding believers into all truth. The Holy Spirit is the source of divine wisdom, understanding, and revelation. Through his presence with believers, the Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures, brings clarity to God's truth, and helps believers discern and live according to God's will. Jesus also notes that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because it neither sees nor knows him. The world, confined to its natural understanding and its limited perspective, fails to recognize and embrace the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a distinct privilege and experience reserved to those who believe. Those who have saving faith. Those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it is for those who are the followers of Jesus Christ. Importantly, Jesus points out that the disciples already know the Holy Spirit because he already dwells with them. During Jesus' earthly ministry, the disciples had the privilege of being in the presence of the Holy Spirit through their fellowship with Jesus himself. However, Jesus is assuring them that a greater experience awaits them. The Holy Spirit will not only be with them, but will also be in them, dwelling within their hearts and their lives. So the promise of the Holy Spirit's indwelling is transformative. And it is also significant. And then... Notice, secondly, the promise of the Holy Spirit's teaching and remembrance, which we've kind of hit on already. That he will bring all things to your remembrance in John 14, 26. He is the spirit of truth. You see, within these words, Jesus provides profound assurance that the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, is not only a comforting presence, not only a comforting indwelling presence, but also a divine teacher. The Holy Spirit is the helper, the advocate, the one who comes along alongside believers to instruct, guide, and reveal God's truth in a profound and personal way. Just as we mentioned in Sunday school this morning, when the church comes together. You see, Jesus emphasizes that the Father will send the Holy Spirit in his name which unites or highlights the unity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in fulfilling the plan of God in redemption and equipping believers for their life of faith. The Holy Spirit's teaching ministry is not an independent endeavor, it's not a private endeavor, but a divine commission in alignment with the purposes of the Father and the Son. Second, Jesus also assures his disciples that the Holy Spirit will teach them all things. The Holy Spirit's teaching surpasses human intellect or earthly knowledge. He imparts spiritual wisdom and discernment. And so the promise of the Holy Spirit's teaching and remembrance is of immense practical significance for believers today. It assures us that the Holy Spirit is not merely an abstract concept, but a dynamic and personal presence in our lives and through the church. Through the Holy Spirit, we have access to the wisdom and understanding needed to navigate all the complexities of life in any age. We have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, to discern God's will, and to grow in our knowledge of God through word, sacrament, and prayer, which is the means that God has established for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Third, this is, the Holy Spirit is the promise of power for witnessing. Jesus' promise to the disciples regarding the Holy Spirit includes the assurance of receiving power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, enabling them to be effective witnesses. You know, I mean, we, we are so messed up that we want to always focus upon cloven tongues of fire on their head and speaking in tongues and the rush of a mighty wind, when that wasn't even the whole purpose of what was going on. That was the work of the Holy Spirit enabling the disciples to effectively proclaim that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. You see, the promise is of power for witnessing. But you shall receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Within these words, Jesus is unveiling a transformative aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry, the impartation of power. This power is not a mere display. That's what we focus upon, though, is the display's. And then we try to repeat them, imitate them. But it's not a mere display. It's not even a mere display of strength or authority. But a divine enablement to fulfill the crucial task of witnessing and proclaiming the gospel to the world. Jesus emphasizes this power, that this power is received when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. In other words, it's not a power of human origin or control. It's not a capability, but a supernatural endowment that comes from God himself through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being the third person of the Trinity, who bestows a divine and transformative energy upon believers, equipping them for the specific purposes of bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And then Jesus clarifies the scope and reach of this witnessing ministry. He mentions Jerusalem, the immediate location, the land of Canaan, followed by Judea, Samaria, And then finally, Jesus declares that their witness will extend to the ends of the earth, encompassing all nations and people groups. And so this promise illustrates the global and inclusive nature of the gospel message empowered by the Holy Spirit's work within believers. And then fourth, we see the promise of spiritual gifts. And this is where we go off the rails. And everything flies apart. But the promise of spiritual gifts is a testament to the gracious work of the Holy Spirit within the lives of believers. Through the power and sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts are bestowed upon believers for the edification and ministry of the church. Grounded in the teachings of the apostles, uh, specifically Paul, Particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we gain a deeper understanding of the Holy Spirit's role in distributing these gifts and their significance within the body of Christ. In the Corinthian church, there was this diverse range of spiritual gifts manifested among believers. Paul emphasizes that these gifts are given by the Spirit for the same purpose of building up the body of Christ to go into the world And take the world for Christ. It's crucial to recognize that these gifts are not earned. They're not acquired through personal merit. But they are graciously imparted by the Holy Spirit according to his divine wisdom and his sovereign will. It is important to highlight that the Holy Spirit's distribution of spiritual gifts is purposeful and intentional. Each believer is uniquely gifted by the Spirit for the common good of the church, not themselves. And so these gifts, they're not random or arbitrary either. But rather they are precisely tailored to equip individuals for specific roles in fulfilling God's redemptive purposes. And so there are various things that are mentioned. Prophecy, healing, wisdom, tongues. It shows that there's a diversity, but we lose sight of what these things actually mean. Prophecy involves the proclamation of God's truth and guidance under the authority of Scripture. Healing gifts demonstrate the compassion and power of God to bring physical and emotional restoration. Wisdom gifts enable believers to apply God's truth to practical situations, fostering discernment and guidance. Tongues, when properly understood, serves as a means of praise, prayer, and the proclamation of the gospel to the whole world, to various people groups of different nations, tribes, and tongues. The purpose of these spiritual gifts is the edification of the church and the advancement of God's kingdom. That's it. These gifts are not intended for personal gain or for self-exaltation, but are to be exercised in love and humility with the aim of building up and serving others. They're given to foster unity and harmony within the body of Christ as believers work together to fulfill their unique roles and to contribute to the overall mission of the church. But today, the work of the Holy Spirit is grieved. We are warned in Scripture not to grieve the Holy Spirit. But today, there's this complete and total resistance. And this grieving of the Holy Spirit is through two means. First, unbelief. We just don't believe. We deny the power thereof. And then, secondly, there's the corruption and deception. These charlatans and these snake oil salesmen and these con artists going around trying to manifest the means that God used rather than the intent and purpose. They're showmen. It's all about showmanship. It's no different than going to any type of a show, whether it's a magical show or a musical show. It's corruption and deception. Therefore, before we close, it's necessary for us to understand the intent and the purposes of the gifts of the Holy Spirit when we are talking about this promise of the Holy Spirit that was given to the disciples and to the church. You see, the real intent and purpose of the gifts of the Spirit, as outlined in Scripture, is multifaceted. But it can be summarized as follows. First of all, for the edification of the church. The primary intent of the spiritual gifts is the edification or the building up of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 12, Paul emphasizes that the gifts are given for the building up of the body. Bodybuilding. To be strong, to go into the world, and to take this world for Christ. It's for the edification of the church. It's for the building of the body. And then secondly, equipping for the ministry. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12, Paul explains that Christ has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. These ministries, along with other spiritual gifts, enable believers to fulfill their unique roles and effectively serve God and others. And then the third is the manifestation of God's Power and presence. Yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a while since we've seen even a glimpse of that in Western civilization. But that's the intent and purpose. So if we're not seeing it, then there's a problem somewhere. Either a problem with the promises or a problem with us. The gifts of the Spirit bear witness to the world and testify to the truth of the gospel. And then fifth, bringing glory to God. And ultimately, that is the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit. It's to bring glory to God. The very first way that you can recognize an imposter is answer that question. Is this seeking God's glory, or is it seeking the glory of man? The real intent and purposes of the gifts of the Spirit is the edification of the church, equipping for ministry, manifesting the power of God and his presence in the church. It's a testimony to the world, and it brings glory to God. When we realize what these gifts actually are, and understand their true intentions and purposes by utilizing the gift of the Holy Spirit, because all these gifts are simply just the gift of the Holy Spirit that Peter talks about in in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Each believer receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, when we understand what these things truly are, and what their intents and purposes are, then the utilizing of these gifts in love and unity. Believers then participate in the work of God's kingdom and contribute to the fulfillment of his purposes in this world. And so, as we reflect upon the promise of the Holy Spirit, we are reminded of the incredible privilege but also the responsibility we have as followers of Christ. The Holy Spirit's indwelling presence transforms us from the inside out, shaping us into the image of Christ and equipping us for the work that he has called to do. Father, as we continue to look at this promise that you have given unto your people, a promise that we truly must confess that we do not believe today. And we don't believe for a lot of different reasons. Again, as we talked earlier in Sunday school, because of past experiences, and we've seen all the charlatans, we've experienced our own disappointments. Lord, we pray that you would revive true faith in you, true trust in your word and in your promises and that we would not continue to grieve the Holy Spirit with our doubt and unbelief may we be fearful of the warning that Jesus gave concerning those who sin against the Holy Spirit Father we need you to send forth your spirit into our hearts and lives and to revive us. And to increase our faith, for we confess our faith is weak. It is very unrecognizable even in the world today. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to gather like the disciples in anticipation and waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us in prayer and in true seeking of you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.